Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I have a warning. This is going to be a reading episode for those of you who do not like the reading episodes. <laughs> I understand if you click off now, but I want to tell you it's some pretty interesting stuff. Now, it may not be the kind of thing to keep you awake on a long drive, but I'm going to read selections from a chapter in The Hive and the Honeybee. And this is the Daydant book, the giant six-inch thick book. But the chapters, they are, they are dense and research-oriented, but there's some fascinating bee stuff in there. So if you're in the mood, if you've got some kind of project in the workshop that you just need a little background noise and you're not feeling too sleepy, this might be interesting. Um... As I think I mentioned to you, I'm studying for my trial run. I want to emphasize it's just my first trial run at the Journeyman Beekeeping Test at the North Carolina State Conference. It's coming up soon. The um, speakers look pretty interesting. It's in Hickory. Uh, I believe it starts August 8th. So if you are in the mood for a conference, it's very inexpensive. The pre-registration has closed uh, but it's it was in the neighborhood of 50 bucks to register. If you're in the Hickory, Charlotte, all that area, so you've got an opportunity to come and listen to some interesting speakers. There's It's a little bit challenging to find the um, schedule on the North Carolina State Beekeepers Association website. They seem to have hidden it pretty deeply. But if you look on the registration page, and it'll say registration closed, there's a link down below that says tentative schedule. Now for some reason when I did it on my phone once that link did not show up but if I did it on my iPad the link did show up. Um, anyway it was a little odd but but keep working on it if you can't find it. Alright so I'm going to read from chapter 8 and this is by Norman E. Gary. It's on page 269 of the Hive and the Honeybee. I think I have. I don't I think it's the 2008 edition. This is that giant book that they update every few years, and um, but I think this is stuff that probably has not been updated since then. I'm going to start out because it's in the intro, and then I'm going to skip around a little bit to some things that I found interesting. All right, Activities and Behavior of Honeybees by Norman E. Gary. Introduction. How much actually is known about honeybee activities and behavior compared to what is still to be learned by man? No one can say for sure. Even though there are thousands of publications on this subject, perhaps only 1% of the bee's behavioral repertoire has been discovered and documented by scientists. Only a naive person would expect to learn, quote, all there is to know, quote, about bees and their activities. Bee behavior is quite complex and has required millions of years to develop to its present stage. Obviously, this chapter cannot contain all the information from thousands of research documents published in many languages during the past 200 or so years. However, we can present a wealth of basic knowledge that should satisfy one's intellectual curiosity and provide a firm informational foundation to support practical beekeeping activities. The available bits of information are similar to pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, although the missing puzzle pieces frustrate us at times and tend to lead us down trails of misunderstanding. There is enough information to provide a rather satisfying profile of the typical behavioral life of the honeybee. This chapter is based on the behavior of European bees, the race of bees that is used commonly in the U.S. Africanized bees are considerably different and are discussed at the end of the chapter. 
Because bees normally nest inside dark cavities with small entrance holes, such as a hollow tree, observations and activities of the honeybee society inside the nest is an exquisite pleasure that was not possible until the development of the glass-walled observation hive around 200 years ago. Viewing bees on their combs in an observation hive is virtually the only way to observe normal behavior because smoking and opening a hive severely disrupts routine bee behavior. The express reason for using smoke is to cause a chaotic situation in which the defensive behavior is momentarily suspended as a means of preventing stings. I'll pause here <laughs> for just a second. You know I can't resist because I'm uh, in the process of getting my observation hive going. Michael Bush on his website talks over and over about how your understanding of bees will change completely once you've had an observation hive and spent time with it. An observation hive is uh, one with glass sides that you put in your house, um, but there's a tube that goes to the outside, and so they function somewhat like a normal hive in a sort of peculiar uh, shape. The one I have, I got off Etsy, and it is it it holds four medium frames, and there it's so it's only one frame thick, so it's tall and uh, kind of skinny. As you have seen from cutout pictures, you know bees will nest in all manner of strange little size compartments. So because it's inside the house, uh, it's going to be in a room of my house that is actually quite cool in the winter. Um, so. I don't think it's, I mean, it's not so cool that they would need to do much clustering except over, directly over any patches of brood, but the glass walls, it has to be dark, so I will um, improvise some type of probably a quilted cover to keep them in the dark except when I'm hanging out with them, and this observation hive, it was a gift from my spouse off Etsy, and I chose that one after reading on the Michael Bush website. He has some uh, tips for choosing an observation hive and this one seemed to meet most of those criteria. I think the maker might have been I think it's called Tall Timbers Shop. He does a lot of uh, woodworking stuff and I will put that link in the show notes. Um, the one I ordered came pretty quickly and uh, the one of the nukes that I have raised, uh, one of the smaller little nukes, I was out there looking around yesterday out in the nuke yard trying to figure out which one was going to be the observation hive and what I'm going to name the observation hive which is kind of this is how I have fun but so so all those nukes actually out in my nuke yard that are not in the real bee yard I'm going to be moving them to one of my out yards that's far enough away letting them reorient to there to kind of break their GPS settings to the farm from the farm here and then I'll move them back to the farm in the actual bee yard except for one who is going in the observation hive. Now let me correct that. That's not, I, I messed up. Some will go in the actual bee yard, some of the bigger nukes that uh, I think can handle the, the winter. Um, and then some of the um, small nukes, I am actually going to work on my shed this little storage shed we have here on the farm that's in a nice, a pretty sheltered eco-climate, I mean, what am I trying to say, microclimate. It is on the, on the north side of our pond, which means that it faces the uh, south sun, and it's, it's a pretty sheltered spot. So inside that shed, which is not heated or anything, but uh, inside that shed, I'm going to experiment this winter with some 
overwintering of uh, nucleus configurations that would normally be too small to get through the winters here. And so they're the experimental group, you know, if you remember the old Star Trek, the special color of the landing party. Well, this is the landing party, so we'll see who manages to come back. But anyway, okay, that was my aside. And while I don't completely agree what this guy said about the whole smoke thing, a chaotic situation, I try not to create chaos uh, with the smoke. I just try to move them out of my way with the smoke and then, or by putting smoke in the air to disrupt their alarm communication. So that's my disagreement with how he described that. <laughs> but anyway, okay, continuing with Norman Gray's activity and behavior honeybees. At this time, mankind is on the threshold of astounding new developments in technology which may provide the means of documenting bee behavior that has been elusive heretofore because appropriate research tools were not available. For example, new electronic devices are being developed to follow and record the flight path of bees outside the hive. Where and how far do bees fly to various destinations associated with foraging, mating, or migrating to new nests? Radar was used successfully, Loper, 1987, to locate and congregate, to locate and track congregations of flying drones. The prototype of solar-powered microchip transmitter developed for tracking individual bees by telemetry was announced in 1988. Who could have predicted only several decades ago that scientists would someday be able to track the aerial pathways of flying bees by means of a radio transmitter? Such novel developments may seem like frivolous fun for research scientists. However, developments of this nature represent milestones in our quest for new knowledge. The observation hive was just as novel when it was first developed. Without new tools to help us gather factual information, we are left only with our imaginations to fill in the missing pieces of the behavioral picture. This has generated a major problem in beekeeping literature in that oft-repeated speculation and theories gradually assume the status of fact, which then stifles further research. Why investigate something when everyone thinks that the answer is already known? stepping aside here and having a comment that didn't take long did it um, I think Samuel Ramsey is the researcher Samuel Ramsey who's just fascinating if you follow him online um, a young researcher in uh, in bees that came from an, a different area of insect research and that and I think probably because of his own life he came in it with fresh eyes and he is the one that uh, proved with his research, designed research to prove that the mites are feeding on the fat bodies, not just the hemolymph. So anyway, yes, I, I think that's true. If we think we know something, then obviously we don't confirm if we actually know it. Okay, back here. Although powerful research tools such as the observation hive and electronic devices have facilitated the resolution of many mysteries of bee behavior, it is ironic that as more information is developed, the net result is an avalanche of tantalizing new questions that stimulate us to even greater efforts to learn more about bee behavior. Activities of honeybees have always fascinated man. The expression, busy as a bee, adequately describes the non-stop activity inside the hive. It is intriguing to realize that behavior is slowing, that behavior is slowly evolving even as you are reading. I'm skipping here over to page 279 and the subtopic 
effects of worker age on activities inside the hive. The pages I skipped are kind of a lot about technicalities about research design, but this is pretty interesting about the effects of worker age on activities inside the hive. As worker bees age after emergence as adults, they are engaged in various activities that are correlated approximately with their age and physiological development. This may be thought of as temporal division of labor or age polyethism. Polyethism, I think is the word. Younger workers tend to stay inside the hive during the first two or three weeks of adult life, then become active in foraging outside the hive during the remaining two or three weeks of their life. Activities inside the hive have been studied by many researchers, and there's a long list of names. In general, these studies were performed with glass-walled observation hive that permit convenient viewing of normal intra-hive activities. Fortunately, bees are large enough that tiny numbered tags or distinctive paint marks can be placed on individuals for identification purposes. This permits the study of individual bees or groups of bees throughout their lives. Thus, the age of observed bees are determined easily by placing combs containing mature brood in an incubator, tagging the newly emerged bees, and then introducing them in the experimental hive. During the first three days after emergence, young worker bees typically clean the cells from which they have recently emerged. Within a day or so after emergence, they begin to feed nectar, diluted honey, and pollen to larvae more than three days old. At approximately six to twelve days of age, after their brood food or hypopharyngeal glands are mature enough to secrete royal jelly, they begin to feed young larvae less than three days old. During their third week as adults, their activity become more varied and less related to urge age per se. Orientation flights, sometimes called play flights, are taken near the hive entrance. Also, bees of this age may be seen cleaning debris and dead bee from the hive, packing pollen in cells, building comb, capping cells, ripening nectar, applying propolis, and receiving nectar from forages returning from the field. Near the end of the third week, some of the workers become guard bees. Now I want to pause here because there is some important information right in this paragraph about managing our hives. So notice that part about that uh, bees approximately 6 to 12 days of age, they, that their hypopharyngeal glands are mature enough to secrete royal jelly. So to step back to our queen rearing things, what this means is all those cells of queens that you have in there, they are only fed royal jelly while they're open. And so you have to have an abundance of bees that are 6 to 12 days of age. And now I'm talking about ideally. It's not to say that the bees can't, you know, push themselves to raise an emergency queen um, in different circumstances. But when we're trying to get the absolute best queen, that means you have to have a bunch of bees age 6 to 12 days. And that's why... When you see the swarm boxes or the cell builder colonies that uh, queen cells are raised in, they are dripping, overflowing with bees, and probably those bees have been introduced like an entire box of capped brood, which is what Michael Palmer does in order to make sure you have an abundance of the right age bees. Okay, back to the text on page 280. It should be emphasized that there is great flexibility in the age-activity relationship. Experiments done by many investigators indicate that there's a typical sequence of age-related activity in a normal colony. 
However, bees of the same chronological age have the potential to change physiologically in response to the changes in the colony. This phenomenon has been demonstrated experimentally. A population composed exclusively of young bees the same age are placed in a small colony where they quickly adjust to the needs of the colony. The full gamut of activities are restored, many of which typically would not have been observed for the age group. For example, bees only one to two weeks old become active field foragers under such conditions. Conversely, very old bees can revert to the role of nurse bees if, for some reason, the nurse bees are removed from a colony population. So here again in this paragraph, you, you see some things, this is Lee, not the article, um, you see some things that we see out in our bee yards. Like for example, if you pull uh, frames of uh, for a nucleus colony and you put those that nucleus colony somewhere in your in your yard. So you haven't moved it a few miles away, you've only moved it maybe a few feet or a few yards away. Well remember of course the forager bees fly back to the mother hive and what's left in that colony are the bees too young to fly. Now the upside of this is that they stay with the colony um, but the downside is they are going to prematurely go out and forage and what happens to bees when they forage? Their lifespan is lessened. So to me that is a, an implication again of when you pull a nucleus colony in order to limit the stress on it, you, you want to pull more bees than they technically need to survive. Um, you don't want to push them to desperate survival because of course anytime they're stressed bad things can happen to them, um, but just like us. But um, I'm sorry about the noise in the background, um, Merkel has a plastic duke mayonnaise jar that he has decided is his favorite toy in the world and so the rattling noise you may hear is Merkel and his Duke mayonnaise jar. Um, but again you don't want to stress your nuke so this is why um, in terms of making splits and nukes to me always err on the uh, generous side because the less stressed they are the easier they're going to do and so this is an important information for all of us making nukes that those young bees that then switch to foraging early which is good um, they also live less long which means that either there's going to be that population dip until that new nuke gets its population going which is why in my opinion this is more reason to never let a nuke, um, well I shouldn't say never, but to not use nukes, a regular nuke, you know with a few frames to make your queen cell because just by definition that little unit is under stress um, and so the thing that they always teach you in b-school about oh just pull a few frames to a nucleus colony and they'll make you a new queen. In my opinion that's why people have such bad luck with raising queens in their backyard when they could make great queens if you just kind of flip that equation and you pull the old queen and plenty of support staff to the nuke box which can either become a spare or a retirement colony depending on how you're running your yard and then let that big hive make your queen cells. Um, now you know they will it that big hive will swarm if you don't take some uh, do some management of those queen cells but so that's I just want to say that I think this paragraph kind of uh, <laughs> is good backup for that plan okay boy I'm not getting very far uh, with all this talking so if you stuck with it 
even though you are not prone to listen to the reading podcast, then you, you're getting a lot of um, bonus material. And for the people who just wish I would just hush and read, <laughs> you're not enjoying this very much. But to each their own, and I thank each and every one of you for listening. Okay, all right, back to the text. Another behavioral characteristic is that individual bees of a given age can and do engage in diverse activities within a short time. For example, a matter of minutes. The time spent in each activity may be very short. Typically, there is cooperation by several bees in a common activity, such as capping a brood cell, even though it has been observed that it is possible for a single bee to cap an entire cell. Bees typically move around a great deal patrolling behavior and respond to the various conditions that stimulate behavior consistent with the physiological conditions and experiences of each bee. Thus, the bee that is carrying a wax particle would be highly stimulated by a cell that's partially capped or that contains the stimuli, whatever they are, of cells that, quote, need to be capped. In summary, there is a continuum of age of bees, physiological conditions, stimulus situations, and genotypic constraints that collectively account for bee behavior. It is important to realize that all bees do not necessarily engage in all types of activity. Some bees age prematurely and initiate field foraging without having been a guard bee or engaging in some kind of activity as house cleaning. Some of the most dedicated research containing bee activities was done by Lindauer, 1953, who continuously observed day and night individual bees throughout their lives. He found that one bee was inactive for a total of 68 hours and 53 minutes. A similar time, 56 hours and 10 minutes, was spent in patrolling behavior in which the bees simply moved around and examined cells and encountered other bees. This time period was interrupted frequently by definable activities. Cell cleaning behavior accounted for 11 hours and 44 minutes. During a total of 1 hour and 50 minutes, the bee fed young larvae up to 3 days old. Feeding 3 to 6 day old larvae occupied 2 hours and 8 minutes. Other activities were comb building, cell capping, guarding, play or orientation flights, and foraging in the field. In general, it was found that the ages of bees engaged in activities were, and okay, there's a chart, and the important part is the age of the bee ranging between 1 and 32 days, so up to their first month of life, um, but mostly in their first three weeks of life, what they work on is cell cleaning, feeding the larvae, comb building, and capping. This was... Um, I mean, they do other things, but those are some of the focused activities in their first few weeks of life. With the exception of activities related directly to foraging, activities within the hive appear to be similar day and night. Thus, bee colonies are never inactive. Periods of inactivity or rest of individual bees are common. Bees apparently don't sleep. Now, I don't really get this because it says periods of inactivity or rest. Oh, okay, I guess inactivity and rest, they're still not asleep. So how interesting. All right, they rest, but they don't sleep. All right, communication. Bees are highly social animals. The basic requirement of social existence is effective communication. Without communication, an animal becomes semi-social or solitary because social interactions require the transfer of information, albeit simple signals. 
Communication as used here means simply the intraspecific transfer of stimuli that elicit behavior or physiological responses in receptive adults, in receptive individuals. <laughs> okay, it does not imply intelligence or awareness or human-like understanding of the messages by the sender or receiver. Whether such communications should be considered a language seems irrelevant to the pragmatic consideration of studying and understanding the significance and mechanisms of communication. The basic modes of communication in bees are similar to those of man, that is, the use of various stimuli such as light, chemical, and physical stimuli that can be perceived by the sensory organs. I'm going to pause here because there is a lot of uh, specifics again about um, uh, these words as they relate to research. I'm going to skip right to the good part. <laughs> communication associated with food location. Spitzner in 1788 apparently was one of the first to call attention to communication in honeybees when he described bee dances as a means by which bees communicate the intensity of a honey flow and location of nectar sources. Spitzer's observations were largely forgotten or ignored until von Frisch, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, F-R-I-S-C-H, in 1920 published his article which they have in German and which I can't read. Since that time, many researchers have contributed a great quantity of information on bee communication, much of which is reviewed in a book by von Frisch, 1967, who shared a Nobel Prize in 1973 for his research contributions in this area. The primary experimental approach to studying the communication of food locations has been to train bees from a glass wall observation hive to collect artificial nectar or at artificial flowers or feeders. Artificial nectar is made by dissolving ordinary table sugar in water to make a syrup. Several drops of a food flavoring or aromatic substance such as peppermint, clove, or lavender are added to mimic the flower, the odors of flowers. Such artificial nectar is very stimulating to bees and apparently duplicates flower conditions adequately to enable valid experimentation. Bees are trained to collect sugar syrup from feeders placed at stations at known and strategic locations. Training bees is not difficult unless there is great competition from abundant nectar of high sugar concentration in the area. Methods of training have been described by a bunch of people. While the trained foragers are feeding at the station, they are captured or tagged or simply, simply given distinctive paint marks in order to identify them. When they are later observed inside the observation hive or at the feeder when they return on successive trips. If the foraging bees are sufficiently stimulated by the food reward, they perform a dance on the vertical comb surface inside the brood nest. Von Frisch, in 1967, described two types of dancing, the round dance and the wagtail dance. The round dance is performed by bees that forage less than approximately 10 meters from the hive. In the round dance, the bee, with quick short steps, runs around in narrow circles on the comb, often changing her direction so that she rushes once to the right, then to the left, and again describes one or two circles in either direction. She may continue to dance for several seconds or even as long as a minute, then she may stop, move to a different location on the comb, and begin dancing again. Finally, she moves rapidly to the entrance and flies out. 
The dance excites some of the nearby bees. They follow the dance movements of the performer with their antenna positioned on or near the dancing bee. Some of them leave the hive, presumably in search of the food source. So, pausing here, I guess we can say that this round dance is what they do when they're going to recruit a bunch of robbers to go out because it's the less than 10 meters from the hive dance and this explains why so quickly groups of robbers appear if you have any um, exposed nectar, honey, or exposed weak hives. Alright, so back to the text. Newly recruited foraging bees that respond to the round dance appear to search in all directions from the hive. For years it was thought that there is little or no information in the round dance regarding the compass direction of food from the hive. A study by Kirchner et al. 1988 indicates that acoustic signals are emitted in the round dance and that there is directional information and perhaps even some indication of distance. This is difficult to assess accurately because no one has successfully traced the aerial flight paths of bees as they fly in the search pattern. Again, pausing here. This is fascinating to me because what I have noticed is if I, back when I used to put out wet honeycomb for the bees to clean out when I used to put them out in an open area, um, which I don't anymore because I saw that it excited robbing in the bee yard. Uh, what I would notice is that a few bees would find the stack pretty quickly of the wet supers and then other bees would come, but even around the house you could see bees outside the window just kind of circling and it's like they were just scoping it out and then they would circle and circle and zero in on the stack. So I wonder if somebody's done research that, that when they are just circling and uh, looking for things, but just as an alternative to setting wet supers out for everybody to clean up, which again can not only create a giant cloud of bees, which can annoy your family and spouse, but um, also you can start robbing. What I do now is take the wet supers that came off the um, that particular hive or, or somebody just who needs to a little uh, extra honey from the wet supers. I stack, I take off the outer cover and stack those wet supers on top of the inner cover. Now be sure to close that little um, entrance in the front of the inner cover so that robber bees won't go there. I stick a piece of duct tape on it. But so that the only access, and you be really careful with this, the only access to those wet supers is through that hive up through the hole in the inner cover. And then you put the outer cover very tightly on the top of that stack, um, or anyway, so one way or another, close it up tightly so that neither the scent um, is, you know, wafting out for, to excite everybody. And also um, that bees from the outside cannot go in uh, that area without coming up through the entire hive, which hopefully the bees in the hive are strong enough to defend. And if you leave those empty supers above that inner cover uh, for a few days, they will lick them clean and dry. And then it's easy to go out in the morning before everybody wakes up usually and uh, pull those off once there are uh, once there are a few bees in it. If you have any trouble with them just kind of hanging around up there, you can again put the bee escape on. So that's a way to get away from having wet comb out in your yard, causing trouble, causing the bees to run back to the hive and do this round dance that we just talked about. All right, so next I'm going to try to wrap this up here. I'm trying to get to a stopping point, but um, 
All right, now we're still on page 284. See how slowly we're going? My God, it would take a year to do this whole book, but I won't. Don't worry. Okay. As the distance from the hive to the food source increases to a range of approximately 10 to 100 meters, the dance form changes into a crescent or sickle dance. Beyond 100 meters, the sickle form changes to the well-known wag dance, in which the dancing bee moves in a narrow half-circle to one side, then turns sharply and moves in a straight line over the imaginary radius of this circle to the starting point, then makes a half-circle in the opposite direction, thus completing a full circle. Then the bee again runs in a straight line, retracing the initial straight line path until she reaches the initial starting point. While running in the straight line portion of the dance, vigorous sideways wiggling motions are made with the body, especially the abdomen. So I'm just going to say those distances again. So like we talked about before, if the food source is under 10 meters, they do the round dance. If it's approximately 10 to 100 meters, they do this crescent or sickle dance. And then beyond 100 meters, they do the classic wagtail dance. So that's pretty interesting to me. I hope you've enjoyed this. I'm going to close here. That wasn't a whole bunch of uh, territory covered because I talked to you so much, but um, this is a pretty fascinating chapter. So if you can stand it, I may do another one. If you can't stand it, just skip that one. But um, I'm going to have to know all this stuff for my test. Actually, this and a lot more. So start wishing me luck, please. <laughs> and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend if you're listening today on Sunday and a good week and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you each and every one for tuning in to beekeeping at Five Apple Farm and I would appreciate it hugely if you would tell your beekeeping friends. Thanks. <laughs>